Hello and welcome to the very 128th episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, the podcast about board games, games, and the games who love them. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about Vampire, The Masquerade, Vendetta. It's yet another game in a series of games based on Vampire, The Masquerade. But will it be one that we like? And after that, I know the answer to that Shush! I know as Quiet well, at the I back. think. Quiet at the back. <laughs> Both of you, see me after introduction to podcast. And after that, we're going to be talking about some of the other games we've been playing recently. Tom will take us through something he made a big video on. It's the pocket-based games that you put in your pocket, the button-shy wallet games. And also, Tom's got a one or two little things he wants to say about beans. My name is Matt Lees, and I'm joined on this board game podcast by Quentin Smith. Hello, Matt Lees! And Tom, the Tom, Thomas Brewster. Hello, the Tom, Thomas Brewster. That's your name. Please don't wear it out. I mean, we'll take it. <laughs> so, a few years ago, Vampire the Masquerade, the famous 90s RPG slash intellectual property sensation, uh, awoke from its ancient slumber. And now we've got all of these new Vampire the Masquerade games. And interestingly, all of these board games were given to different publishers, like a kind of weird test. So we had Vampire the Masquerade Heritage, which was a kind of legacy game about piloting your vampire clan through history. Um, that I have heard mixed things about. There was Vampire the Masquerade Blood Feud, which was kind of trying to be a mega game, but wasn't a mega game. We had a weird experience of it. Uh, next year, Vampire the Masquerade Chapters is coming out, and that's kind of like a miniatures combat game set in Montreal that looks a bit like Imperial Assault or Descent. Um, but today, we are going to be talking about Vampire the Masquerade Vendetta. And for my money, this is uh, perhaps the Vampire the Masquerade board game that you should be keeping an eye on. Vampire the Masquerade Vendetta is set in the cool town of Chicago. It's full of vampires. You and your friends are going to be playing different vampire clans, battling for control of delicious blood, and also friends who you may or may not be draining for delicious blood. Um, <laughs> I'm going to throw this open to the room. Uh, Tom, First impressions, how did you feel about Vampire the Masquerade Vendetta? I was surprised that it's pretty sharp. I'm interested to know if it's a... F I've put here, in my little notes, I've put flexible and sharp bluffing game, which sounds like a little tagline that the designers can put on the box. But I don't know... I'm interested to know whether it is flexible, but it's definitely sharp. But is it sharp and flexible? <laughs> Matt? <laughs> You've gone very day-to-day -day there. Yeah, I, I think, to be honest, my... Uh, my hopes and dreams regarding Vampire the Masquerade uh, tabletop games being good have been so crushed against the rocks of reality that I really wasn't expecting anything. And I was pleasantly surprised. I think it's a very interesting thing that definitely brought back a lot of my memories and love for the source material in a way which was was very pleasing to me. And I think we're probably going to get into this, me and you, Quins, because I know that we both share the same background of having been really into the setting and the um, the RPG when we were little children. It's true. Um, for people who weren't trying to get into RPGs in the 1990s, what you need to know about Vampire the Masquerade, and this heavily influences uh, my opinions on Vendetta, the card game we're talking about. On everything, about. let's be real. On also, also everything, a very formative impact. People need to know that after Dungeons & Dragons came out um, and people were sort of like trying to release new RPGs, Vampire the Masquerade in the 90s had like an enormous cultural effect. The book 
The book of the first edition, which I believe is the first edition, which is like this green marble slab with a rose on it and this crazy gothic font saying Vampire the Masquerade, was, and I don't mean to exaggerate here, the coolest thing any geek had seen up till that point. <laughs> this was an RPG that was aimed at teenagers, a bit like how the Sandman comics, if you're into your graphic novels, um, were some of the first comics that were aimed not at kids, not at adults, but specifically teens. And Vampire the Masquerade fills the same spot. It was sexy. It was dark. It was brooding. It was about vampires. But guess what? In this world, the vampires are real sad and real political. And I'm happy to say that Vampire the Masquerade Vendetta, this card game that we all played, kind of carries on that sort of, um, you know what, I'm trying to avoid saying this sentence, but I'm going to say it. It's cool. It's a cool card game. And people at home also really need to know Vampire the Masquerade Vendetta is very, very pinky purple. And this color scheme it has is so distinctive and so neat. I'm going to throw it up into the room again. Tom, how do you feel about the colors in this game? <laughs> That's such a broad question. I think that the art in the game in general is pretty gorgeous. And I think that the way that each faction seems to have... I don't know if I've played enough of the factions to really determine whether this is entirely true, but have a, their own unique sort of like two-tone color scheme that kind of drapes each of the cards in this sort of very neony. I was going to say garish. It's not garish. It is stylish two-tone effect that is just like absolutely gorgeous. Each of those factions gives so much character, even to someone like me, who is unfamiliar with the source material, to be honest. That's the like the best thing a game like this can do, right? It's like put a sort of borrowed nostalgia or like secondhand love for this franchise onto someone that's never even touched it. <laughs> oh, that is absolutely a great sign of a licensed game. People think, you know, does a licensed game feel like, I don't know, say Dune, for example. Does a Dune game feel like Dune? That's not the gold standard. The gold standard for a licensed game should be, does someone who know nothing about Dune, or in this case, Vampire the Masquerade, feel immersed and excited about this world? Like, is this their way into the world? And I think Vampire the Masquerade Vendetta does feel a little bit that way. But Matt is the most, by far the most opinionated person about art and colour schemes and layout in the world. So Matt, how do you feel about how, I promise I'll teach you how to actually play the game in a moment, but how do you feel about the aesthetics of this game? I think the aesthetics are pretty cool. Like I do have some like minor concerns about legibility and uh, clarity, but that's mainly because we've been playing on Tabletop Simulator and I've not physically seen the final uh, actual physical card game. And I think, to be honest, in real life, it would be absolutely fine. The, the use of the color palette is, is, is interesting in the fact that actually what Tom was sort of saying is you've got this interesting combination of having quite high contrast artwork in terms of lots of shadows, lots of, lots of bright lights, but also very soft colors. And I think that's really interesting is usually with this, you would have like high contrast hard light where actually what it's done is it's used a lot of high contrast soft light, which I think, you know, paints figures in a much more appealing light. And again, it makes it kind of sexy. And you're not wrong about that. Like the thing you have to remember about Vampire the Masquerade is it came out of the phenomenon in the, in the shadow of of Anne Rice, really, you know, of interview with the vampire being this vampire film where it's like, what if vampires? But holy crap, I want to kiss that vampire. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that they've really kind of nailed that again. But I think what's more impressive to me, right? And I think the reason that actually I really like the tone of this game and immediately was like, oh, this is exciting to me, is it's not regressive. Um, one of the difficult things about bringing something that's from 
20 years ago or more 30 years god i'm old uh i'm not really it's fine spring chicken um is that <laughs> it's it's so easy to just drag up the past and and put something out that is cliched and boring without realizing that you're doing it you know there's a video game that came out recently that did did that for another popular rpg series and really (laughs) what i like so much about this especially in contrast to a lot of the other stuff we've seen uh coming out in terms of vampire the masquerade revamped content within the tabletop scene over the last revamped Uh, (laughs) Uh... i didn't mean it it was an accident (laughs) send quins to jail not me (laughs) is that a lot of it was felt really backward looking and the fact that it was literally just just bringing not just what it was back then but also i felt in many cases what people who played it as kids remembered back then and maybe forgetting what it actually was to a degree and i think it's maybe no surprise that like there had been incidents with some of the people working on some of these games where there's some really kind of nasty and problematic stuff creeping through in some of the some of the side projects should we do a brief uh, side thing here on how weirdly there was a little vestige of kind of like white nationalism that's made its way into the world of darkness rpg development yeah. oh, what oh no uh, yes so t- basically if i were to tell you tom that vampires are uh, basically a power fantasy it, the the, mm. the dialogue of vampire the masquerade is very much we are the powerful vampires we feed on people we feed on sheep we're better than them we're smarter than them and perhaps if i describe it that way you can kind of see yeah. how that lends itself to something that's a little bit fascist yes just a just a just a sprinkling of fash a little bit. And to clarify, lots of people, obviously, who like Vampire the Masquerade, like, specifically, actually, Vendetta, this card game we're talking about, is quite progressive. The card art of the people whose blood you drink, it's a very sort of, like, realistic sampling of who lives in Chicago today. Vampire the Masquerade Vendetta, also the first card game I've seen that has a picture of a smartphone user interface. Like, one of the cards just shows Instagram. And I say that because... I'm trying to build up on what Matt is saying. This is a game that tries to reinterpret Vampire the Masquerade for the 21st century, as opposed to what I think a lot of the other Vampire the Masquerade time games are doing, which is trying to recreate what was cool about it in the 90s, which you cannot do. But that's it, though. Like, I don't think it's even just that. I think it was trying to recreate what was cool about it in the 90s from the memories of the people who played it. And this is one of the interesting things about uh, pen and paper RPGs, is you have this system and you have this setup and you can have all of these different stories and bits of source material and source books for these rpgs but at the end of the day human minds are selective and people are going to create the kind of thing that they want and they're going to ignore the elements that they don't care about you know and i think what was very interesting in the fact a lot of the the more recent stuff is so many of these other projects the thing they seem to remember the most was one of the clans called Bruja or Bruja I don't know how you pronounce it but uh, Bruja I believe Bruja who were basically the vampires who were mean and gnarly and good at fighting right and that's like one of many different things but they're the kind of like powerful gang member style things and it, it was all that it was all edgy and violent and gory and yes that was a part of vampire the masquerade but it was also intrigue sexiness responsibility like the thing that has been forgotten by some of the people who've worked on more of the recent stuff was not the fact that yes you're this powerful creature who has control over entire of humanity if you want it but more importantly that you exist within a hierarchy of other vampires and there are very very strict rules about what you can and what you cannot do and if you want to do things outside of that you need to get permission you need to go through quite tedious 
steps to get permission from the people that in charge of your city to be able to like make a new vampire or like kill another vampire or like even like if you're killing too many people then someone's going to give you a slap on the wrist and eventually you might get killed for it but i think the moment where i saw this game and thought ah this is cool is the realization that gangrel who again were kind of interchangeable in the minds of some people i think with the bruja in fact they were basically like really good at fighting and being strong but also very big and hairy vampires and the key art for gangrel in this game is this chap in a vest top with like a, a twisted styled mustache and it's basically like a hipster <laughs> and it's like yeah <laughs> who are the gigantic hairy dudes of today now they're working cool coffee shops or bars and that is i i think yeah just as a reimagining of the setting and and what these people what these factions would look like now i think is so much more interesting and so much more exciting than people just dredging up their own kind of fantasies from when they were teenagers but without being able to reflect on them maybe maybe that's really harsh but i, I kind of feel like that's where a lot of that stuff is coming from i will just say before we move on to the discussion of the game proper all this stuff we're saying about the development of vampire the masquerade vendetta that we like so much didn't necessarily come as a surprise to me because it's published by horrible guild the italian publishers who are behind the king's dilemma and railroad inc some of my favorite games of the last few years so very much a publisher to watch in my humble opinion and horrible guild i think you should keep it up uh should we actually talk about the game now let's actually talk about the mechanics so, how do you actually play Vampire the Masquerade Vendetta? What's the game? Well, the game is as follows. Uh, at the beginning, everyone's going to choose their own vampire clan and take a little deck of cards, which you may or may not be recruiting over the course of the game. Um, the game then starts with everyone drawing two cards into their hand, a card that's a bit more aggressive, a card that's a bit more defensive, and then maybe one or two special cards relating to your clan. Now, over the course of the game, you win by getting the most victory points, and the way you do that is, on each of the game's three rounds, you're going to be sending these cards from your hands out into different areas of Chicago to try and battle for the allies that appear there. So, when we played, there were three of us, which meant there were three areas of Chicago. At the start of each round, each of those areas of Chicago gets a card, which is a cool ally who you can, if you win the battle for that region on that round, you get that cool ally, um, and that card goes in front of you. Allies might be vampires they might be powerful humans like the heads of tech companies or they might be you know famous politicians and you are going to get a ton of victory points if you win the battles for these people they're going to sit in front of you and also if you don't then drink their blood because the fun <laughs> thing about vampire the masquerade vendetta is it has a tremendously evocative economy of blood drinking so all of the victims you have, these other cards along with your allies, are going to be providing you with a little drip of blood every round. And blood can be used to strengthen your attacks as you try and take control of different areas of Chicago. However, there are also lots of cards that your opponents are going to be playing that cause you to spend more blood or steal blood from you. Now, if you run out of blood, the only way you can get blood is by fully draining the victims and allies that sort of create your network of friends that your vampire knows. Which means, you know, yes, you might have won loads of battles for Chicago and made loads of powerful allies, but if your friends can make you thirsty enough, if they can force you to spend enough blood, you're going to go into a frenzy, which means randomly you will start drinking your own allies' blood just to get your fix. Vampire the Masquerade Vendetta is a game of trying to decide when and where you're going to sort of invest 
your cards and your resources to take control of little bits of Chicago. I'm trying to outplay your friends so you don't, for example, go heavily invested in one area only for your friend to get into some arms race and then, oh no, you've lost anyway. So you lost all of that, all of those resources you put into that battle were for nothing. To make sure that doesn't happen, you want to spend blood. But if you spend too much blood, you may well bankrupt yourself, blood rupt yourself. I don't know. <laughs> and that would be disastrous. So there's an overview. Who wants to talk about how this game made them feel? I'll talk about how it made me feel. It made me feel quite stressed, but in a good way. Um, An important thing that Quinns didn't talk about is that when you're playing cards to locations, you can spend blood to play cards face down as an horrible bluff. And I think that that feeds into my favorite thing about this entire game, which is the learning of what every player has in their hand over the course of the game. Because it's three rounds and each round you're adding precisely one card into your hand, every single round you know exactly what your opponent has minus one unknown variable. And playing cards face down, which costs you a blood, is such a power move in this game. Um, It happens quite often, obviously, but it's so juicy because the deductive process of working out whether you can win an environment is so wrinkled by playing those cards face down the bluffs that you can pull off and you don't play all the cards from your hand every turn either you always have one that stays in your hand so working out exactly what every player has put down is such like a scintillating little puzzle of like working out if they're if you know they've got a really good card like for example in the second round i picked up this card called auction of blood i hate this card (laughs) i think that that was kind of the cornerstone of what made this game so interesting to me because it broke the convention of how blood was exchanged in the game essentially the blood auction um when it's revealed you break the normal tradition of you just pay blood into the the fight if you want to instead everyone bids with blood in their hands in real life we had to use uh hidden fog of war zones in tabletop simulator um a certain amount of blood that they all then lose but you put into the fight which gives you extra strength and the person that bids the least is a flipper card face down but it, it doesn't sound that remarkable when you say it like that but I think what was so interesting about it is that that's like a little bomb and a little mini game that's just sitting somewhere in the midst of these three locations every round and Matt and Quinn's have to play around knowing that that's there this entire time. I just thought that was really cool. It's very cool. And it lets you develop a relationship with different cards that your friends are playing. Um, So, you know, every time a card comes out for the first time, it's going to be a shock. But if that card is played in the first round, it will be played again in rounds two and three And I found that while I didn't love being hit by something I didn't expect or didn't know, when that card reappeared again and I would be like, oh, not this again, that's actually quite a cool moment, depending on the clan you pick as well, because all of the clan decks are very different and have a very different style. Let's you develop a relationship to the different players playing different clans around the table. I really enjoyed that Matt played, I believe, the Toreador, who are the friendly artists clan Mm. and most of the cards that matt drafted simply gained him more victims and more blood and more power (laughs) and better economy but it meant that and this is where the two-tone color that every clan has is really important it meant that i could at a glance look at the board and wherever i saw matt's green and white cards i knew that was a bit less aggressive a bit more safe because those cards would probably be spinning up matt's economy yeah, it was interesting in the fact that obviously the game takes place in winning fights within these three different uh, areas to gain points. But to a degree, it didn't really matter so much for me. I did need to win a couple here or there, but it was more this idea of like me just being these pliable scenesters who turn up and just like don't really get involved in the fracas, but then like, hey, 
make 10 cool new friends who take them home and <laughs> yeah i was just amassing this collection of, of human blood bags and, you had uh, so many and so like many. yeah and i almost it was interesting for me because i was trying to win these fights but i i couldn't a lot of the time um but then again it's like i i kind of had extra power in the fact that i was getting so many humans i could just be draining them all and then having much more blood to spend on the fights to actually kind of win or i could just be collecting this wardrobe full of humans that were going to get me points at the end of the game uh, which was which was interesting i love as well that wardrobe full of humans because all of the victim cards which are the humans who provide you with a steady income of blood unless you drain them fully and then they give you a sudden payday of blood and then they're gone all of the those victims are unique cards that show a human with their own face their own name their own job and their own quote which does a great job of fleshing out who they are as a person but i say again all of these cards are the same which thematically is so fun because it means whenever you gain a new victim, someone else who is enthralled to your vampire whose blood you drink occasionally, that is a human that sits in front of you and you treat them really callously because they have so little of a game effect. And yet there's no getting away from the fact that they are a fully fleshed out human being yeah. who you are treating like dirt. You're just like, oh, I'm going to drain Alan this turn. Oops. But you will say Alan. You won't say this victim. You yeah. will say their name. No, <laughs> The sequence of really nice strokes and the fact that yeah it's given all of that characterization all that personality all that individuality but then in reality they're not and you don't treat them as such uh you might make a passing decision whether you're going to be alan or kevin <laughs> again that would be funny like even just even just the process of like draining blood from other players taking blood from each other the fact that you know you can really try and just steal blood from other players in a way that you hope will cause them to frenzy and accidentally eat one of their vampire friends is very satisfying. Like, it's the take that rules always popping up in a way that means like, aha, you get messed up by this. It, it's consistently quite satisfying in a way that works both ways. It's not that you're just having feel bad moments. It's the fact that actually when you are messing up other players, unlike in some games where you almost feel bad about it, you never feel bad about it here, which is really cool. It's like, you know, when, when you're draining someone's blood so they frenzy and eat a vampire and you get a point for it. Like, you're never like, oh, I'm sorry about that. It's always brilliant. You're just like, yeah, like, I I really messed with you there. Um, I really like as well the fact that the different factions all play quite differently and have different styles. Like Nosferatu had lots of cards that involved basically sneaking off and reappearing at the prince's area. So you kind of knew that wherever they went, it's like they were always going to probably end up sneaking off and whispering in the prince's ear and causing trouble, which was interesting. The other thing that's really interesting about this is this is ostensibly a really potentially quick game you have a, a deck of like 11 cards for each of the different factions but you only have at the end of the game like a hand of five of them six of them so mm. yeah like five right yeah so you are playing three rounds and then it's it that's it in digital land where we've been playing the games still take quite a while because increasingly we're realizing that card games in particular are really not great for playing digitally but I wonder how fast it could be in real life. And especially because imagining playing this with four, five, six players is really interesting to me because I wonder if that might add some of the fast and looseness that I feel I am missing from this. Because I think what I, I like, I, I really do like the decisions that you have to make in terms of not just which of your cards are you going to play, but in what order are you going to play them? And holding back cards because you want to see how 
the landscape pans out in terms of who's going where so you can choose where to best place your best card and because you have so few cards and they're teased out so slowly you do kind of have a connection with these cards and you do want to use them all and want to kind of get the most out of them and that side of the decisions of crunching the numbers and trying to work out how much blood to put in and how much to do I really enjoyed that as a calculation of trying to work out how much you're going to invest in this area to try and win it. But when it actually came to working out the fights and having to make decisions in the middle of fights based on that, that's the point where the number work just became a bit too much for me and I kind of checked out. Like There are a few cases where it's like, do you want to lose blood or lose one of the people you have in this fight? And I knew at that point that if I had the brain power and the patience, I could count up all of the current values and be like, can I afford to lose a person in this fight and then keep the blood? But I would often just go, oh, I'll just lose the blood. And I knew that that was kind of a bad decision because I knew I should really know for sure that I should crunch the numbers and work out whether or not I was throwing away money effectively for no reason. But it was just slightly too much to add up. And the thing that I find interesting is like with four or five players, like, I don't know. Like it was always at the prince's location, the final location where things mm. ended up clumping together. So it wasn't, I would say, it wasn't a really big problem. It wasn't something that kept happening and kept slowing down the game and kept being slightly uncrunchable by my impatient brain. But um, I'd just be fascinated to see if you played it around a table with more people, whether the game would be much faster and because of that, much more throwaway in terms of people not caring too much about the numbers and just going with their gut. Or if it would also be just too crunchy with the numbers at the end. I found it very much a game of like bluffing and deduction and like very crunchy at three. I think at three, I really enjoyed it. I would be interested to see if that carries on to a bigger game because it could be way more take that and random and like loads of stuff goes off at once. Like already in a in a three player game, I would liken the showdown at the Prince's Haven, the last location, to often be a sort of Rube Goldberg of interactions that you can maybe work out, but it's still a little bit bumpy. I have a couple of things to add here. The first is that interestingly, Board Game Geek says that this game is best with five to six players and we have only played it with three people twice. Um, so I, I find that interesting. Also though, don't forget that when you play with more players, you have more locations. So if you play with you know five players, the locations are not getting more and more dense with card effects, although that is a, a thing. Um, because players will be dividing themselves over more locations and having less cards to play. They likely will at the Prince's Haven, though, because a mechanic that we haven't necessarily talked about that much is that before every fight, everyone has the opportunity to withdraw. And if you withdraw, you don't go to the next location or you're back to your hand. Every card that you had at that location goes to that final one, mm. the Prince's Haven. So I can imagine that in a game with more players you could potentially have a situation where multiple people are choosing that withdrawal because they realize they've not invested enough in each individual location and you have this bloodbath of <laughs> characters at the Prince's Haven at the end, which could be, you know, really exciting and tense, but I imagine that it would feel a bit like someone emerges victorious, not necessarily because they made the best play, but because everyone else played off against each other. But maybe, like, that's that isn't the kind of game that I dig... But maybe it's the game that Board Game Geek digs. And also, that's me 
completely speculating on what it would be like. <laughs> uh, honestly, I think you two are, are putting word to a, a lot of the kind of fears I have. And to clarify, I think all three of us would agree that especially given we haven't played this enough and we've played it on Tabletop Simulator, this is not like us, you know, saying it's an amazing game. We're just saying that we enjoyed our plays of it. We find it interesting and we really need to play it in real life to... Uh, yeah to get more into it. But um, I do think this game sits in a really interesting, weird place. Because first off, you know, it takes, in, Board Game Geek says it takes 30 minutes to finish a game, which in, you know, real life, I'm sure is more or less true. <laughs> um, also, it is a kind of bluffing game, and that's that's a big part of the, the thrill. But also, as Matt says, it's a huge crunch of card effects. Like if you have three people playing two cards each into an area, and all those cards have unique writing, you're activating six card effects, which like one card might say, okay, someone has to flip a card face down unless they do this. Someone else has to sacrifice this or this. Oh, there's an auction now. There's a blood auction where we all have to pour blood into it. <laughs> like, it's kind of nuts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a little bit nuts. Just a little bit. Yeah. And I think I would be completely fine with the nuts side of it. Because I'm a big fan of, you know, things like Cosmic Encounter, which are just, and then, and then, and then... Yes, and um, uh, I like that, right? But I think the difficulty that I was having with it, and it wasn't a big difficulty, but I guess it's one of those things where for context, I'm not too bothered about winning or losing. But at the end of the game, me and Quinns had a tie, which meant it did come down to a tiebreaker of who had the most blood, which Quinns won by one blood, which in the game is not a lot of blood at all. It's like nothing. But I was finding myself having to make decisions that felt like I was splitting hairs, but it would make a tiny economic uh, benefit to me if I got the decision right and then I wasn't making them. And then the game kind of comes down to that at the end, maybe. So it's like you kind of think, ah, maybe I should have thought about that more. And I think it's it's the equivalent of, you know, you can go around a table playing poker, let's just say, and you've, you've done your, your rounds of bidding and now it's time to to flip over your cards right and it's time to flip over your cards and everyone flips over your cards and it's like oh this person's won but then someone says to you oh look actually like everyone now has to put one of their cards off and you kind of do that and you go okay and then it's like and then someone says to you specifically ah you have to flip over this card and this card but if you do that you can take 10 pounds out of the pot straight away <laughs> and it's suddenly like rather than having this like this crunch period of working out what the odds are, working out what your chances are, and then being like, right, cards on the table, let's flip it all over, let's reveal what happens. The fact that you then were asked to make decisions about the current state of what mm. you've done in the middle of it, I just found like my brain crunched up a bit and I felt bad because it was like, I felt like I was holding it up. It was like, it wasn't technically my turn anymore. It was like a zone of everything working out and I was trying to do maths in my head and failing and i was still fine with the fact that i just decided you know what i don't care that much i'm just gonna do this like it wasn't a big deal but that for me was a tiny thing where i was like i just wish there was i can do maths before in my own time and i can do maths afterwards but i don't like to do maths during while everyone's waiting for you yeah i think i agree with all of your criticisms matt and the way i would describe it is that this is a card game that really is kind of if you really want to get the most out of it, if you really want to thrill on making those decisions in the middle of a fight, not just the fun bluffing, where do you put your cards, but how do you play out the nitty gritty of the fight? It's kind of a card game for card gamers. Like I feel like it's a card game for people who are into games like Magic the Gathering or Android Netrunner. And the things that you describe having trouble with, just doing maths in the moment, the small tactical decisions. I had no trouble with that, I think because I spent four years playing competitive Netrunner. So it's like second nature to me. 
And I think the crucial thing is, like, I was kind of aware of that when I was playing. I still really like it. I still really enjoyed it. But I just got the sense of I'm perhaps not good enough at this type of game to be good at this game. And that's fine. Like, both times I've played, like, I haven't done... I did better the second time, but it's like... I still have fun playing it, but I just find that when you hit those walls, when you realise, like, oh, I can't quite work this out, or I don't quite have the patience to work this out, it's sort of... If you're not careful, it sort of undermines all of your other tactical decisions, you know? Because it's like, if yeah. you're not willing to make them all the time, then what's the point in crunching so hard on them the rest of the time? A small weird thing I wanted to say during this discussion. I hate Take That card games. I hate card games where someone plays a card and go, I'm going to play this on you, Tom. Tom, now you have to lose two points. That is like my least favorite mechanic ever. But Vampire the Masquerade Vendetta is kind of a little bit of that. Like, you know, it's very much you go into a fight, someone flips a card and it's like, aha, blood auction. Now you have to bid blood. And you're like, oh no. But A, you know, there's something about choosing to go to an area and then getting beaten up at that area that makes it more palatable for me. And B, I really like that mechanic that before you resolve each location at the end of each round where you go, okay, we've all done playing cards. Let's actually have the fight here. You all have the option to go in or out. And that is enormous for me because it means that I'm faced with a choice right up to the last minute where someone goes, we're just about to flip what these secret cards are. Are you sure you want to be here? And that, <laughs> and if I make the decision, yes, psychologically, I'm fine with everything that happens after that because I had the option to run away like a big coward and I didn't and therefore I'm happy to accept whatever comes to me. That's it. That's the last point I wanted to say. Let's put a stake in it. <laughs> Let's temporarily drive a stake through our conversation of Vampire Vendetta and say that we might well be having more coverage of this on the site uh, in the future because A, game's pretty interesting and B, as we said before, it's very pink. And I want to play it with my hands. I want to touch it, Quinns. I really want to play it with my hands. I want to touch it with my hands, put my little mitts on it, make those like cards all greasy. I've got a copy. I've got a copy. I've got a copy. Yeah, but... We're like in separate worlds, in bubbles. Yeah, I'll divide all the components of the game. <laughs> and we can, I'll, each, I'll mail you each a third of it. If you wanna wanna. If you wanna. If you wanna wanna watch us play Vampire. <laughs> um, if you want to watch us play Vampire the Masquerade Vendetta, we did it on Twitch. So you can watch that on our Twitch channel so long as you catch it within a month of this podcast release. Actually, maybe three weeks of this podcast release. You can check our Twitch. It might be there. But let me tell you about another game that we played on stream that I also want to talk about on the podcast. And that game is Excaliborn, the latest and greatest not greatest version of Bonanza. It's absolutely hit. not the latest either. It's isn't not it? the it... latest. <laughs> Wait, is it not the latest? Hang on, let's find out. I'm pretty let's sure. Find it's out. Not, I'm pretty sure it's ancient. Excalibur. 2020. 2020. Oh, I'm undone. I'm undone by beans. <laughs> I'm undone by beans all the time. Oh wow! The BGG page for this says re-implements Bonanza and Rabonzel. The yeah, Rapunzel. well, oh, Quins. We'll get to that later. Oh, okay. Um, Bonanza is definitely one of the games that suffers, or Excalibone is one of the games that suffers from playing, from being played in TTS. Um, briefly, for those that don't know, Bonanza is a classic game of trading beans, planting beans, making money. I think it's brilliant, as talked about on the Uwe Rosenberg special. It's great. It's a great game. It's a classic. Here's the thing. 
I don't want to spend too much time talking about Excalibur. It's not very good. It directly goes against Bonanza being this really solid uh, magic little design and all of the faff added to it seems kind of pointless. Essentially, Bonanza, the bean trading game, you've added magic into it. There's now magic beans, Quinns. You're the only okay. one that didn't play it. Yeah. The beans, the magic beans have special powers. They let you take cards from other people. You can draw more cards. You can have spells that will let you do extra things in this extra magic phase that happens every round. It's faff. It's pointless. It's confusing. It can get in the bin. I mean, the peak faff was when, like, if you play the power of the sword bean, then you choose another player who will take one of the beans off of their money pile and flip it. And then depending on what type of bean it is, a different effect happens, including (laughs) if you flip over another sword bean, then they basically reverse the sword bean and then they sword bean you. And it's just like... What is happening here? It's just... You get beansed, Quinn. Everyone's getting beansed. That game made me, like, in the stream, it made me sad. There was a point where I definitely just became sad. Now, arguably, that was <laughs> that was probably because I'd eaten a chocolate chip cookie and I was crashing off sugar. But I think I just... I, I'd never played Bonanza. And I, I think I just said something along the lines of, I thought we were just going to have a nice time with beans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whilst realising that I was getting completely, completely ruined by uh, you and Ava cutting up my beans like no one's business. I do not want you to think that Bonanza is a bad game. Excalibur is not a good game, and it's not a good game to play in in the digital environment. I don't think Bonanza would survive being played in digital environment either, but it's definitely a good game. I can believe that. But that's all I wanted to talk about. Excalibur was that it isn't very good. Whatever. Yada yada. However, I went on a little bonanza journey through all of the bonanza expansions oh no. Oh no. on Board Game Geek. Matt oh no. and Quinns, have you heard about Bonanza's racist expansion? Oh. <laughs> you know, way back in the day on Shut Up and Sit Down, I thought it would be a fun feature on the podcast to um, talk about some of the most problematic uh, games in BGG's database. And that feature got canned because it was super depressing. So yeah. I, I sincerely hope that whatever you've got... No, no, I don't know about Bonanza's racist expansion. Tell us about it, please, Tom. Well, Born to be Wild, which is an excellent title, <laughs> completely squandered, is a 2012 <laughs> Bonanza variant that adds racist beans. Um, oh. I don't know or care about what else it adds, but the art is like garishly horrible. It's not like it's not even like oh that's a bit questionable. It is objectively quite foul. Um, my favourite review on Board Game Geek was as far as racist set collections games about beans go, I find this one to be slightly below average. <laughs> <laughs> so you know that that's a thing. That's a thing. And I know what you're thinking. All the Bonanza expansions can't be problematic, and you'd mostly be right. Um, Let me do a quick run-through. There's Peanut Bonanza, which you have a peanut buried in your field. It's fine if you just have a peanut buried in your field, but if it's the top card, your whole field is worthless. There's an expansion... Peanuts are beans, by the way. Peanuts are... Are they not legumes? Yeah, I thought a legume is a bean. A legume is a bean. Wait, no. Isn't a bean is a legume, but not all legumes are beans? I don't even want to encourage our audience to answer that question. Moving on. <laughs> There's an expansion that adds, uh, this is what it says on BGG, adds human relationships to Bonanza. Wait, uh, it's <laughs> what? 
I don't know what that means. It's on there. There's Rabonzel, uh, a standalone Bonanza experience where you rescue a bean from a tower. That's as far as I can tell. <laughs> it's all in German. There's my first Bonanza, which is a kid's version of Bonanza. There's Ladyborn, which adds kids to Bonanza. Oh. And some sexualized bean illustrations as well, because Bonanza just can't help being a little bit slimy. And there's Bonanza, <laughs> fun and easy, which is also for kids as well, but I didn't really understand. And there's Bonanza, 20-year anniversary, which I presume adds everything all together. But all of this, right, I looked at all of this, it just leaves me thinking, why expand this game endlessly when literally all you need is nicer art and a nicer box and it legitimately be a game that's, you know, like not a joke? But like mechanically, Bonanza is such a corker. If there was like an Oink Games version of this, people would like think it's the best. But instead of doing that and capitalizing on a really, really great game, it's just got more ugly mechanically, visually, and unbelievably morally. <laughs> and I can't believe I said that about a game that's about bean trading. Oh, wow. I'm losing my mind. Everyth- everything's political, even beans, even beans. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to find these on on Board Game Geek and I can't find any of them. Are you sure you haven't had a weird dream? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. If you go to the Bonanza page and then click expand, that's what I'm doing, that's... and I can't find any of the ones he's talking about. I think it's you have to go on Bonanza's page and then you see re-implements. Uh, how did you not mention Bona Nostra, the the mob expansion for Bonanza? Oh, did I knew I there, were, there were tons you didn't mention. Bonanza, Princes and Pirates. That adds Princes and Pirates. Uh, oh Bone wait, these are in. Oh my goodness, wait, these Bone are in Camille? expansions. Yeah. Oh no. Oh, okay, oh so, Tom, you've I... just scratched the beanie surface. Oh, no. oh, there's three pages with ten per page. Oh my goodness. Okay, so here's here's what I'm wanting to do, uh, Tom. Shut Up and Sit Down has never had an enemy before. But <laughs> if you feel strongly about this, I would be happy to declare that I think it's Amigo, the German publisher who who is is responsible for for not just failing to update Bonanza into an edition we can recommend, but doing absolutely abhorrent things with it. We could have Amigo be our enemy. I, I'm down to have a nemesis for the company. Yeah. We can, company we, can say, we can say, greetings, Amigo. Like, Ooh, like that's that. good. Yeah. When we meet them at conventions. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just looking at like the arts but for, in Bone to be Wild. And holy heck, yeah, it's it's racist. It's, um, it's, it's fully bad. It reminds me of the um, the sketch in Nathan For You where, well, not even, the bit in Nathan For You where he tells a caricature artist to like just get really racist with it as a business strategy. And like that that's a parody show. And that's, this is real. This is actually in real life. You can buy it. That's horrible. Remember that idea you had about Alhambra, uh, Tom, where you can play all of Alhambra's <laughs> expansions and then it's like a legacy experience. Yeah, we bean could, legacy. Uh, oh my um, goodness. Yeah. It, would be, it would be horrifying. But yeah, there you go. That's just a little thing. I just wanted to, I just, I didn't know about this horrifying world of Bonanza expansions. There are so many. There are so many re-implementations. As a, I mean, if, if people aren't aware, Board Game Geek, which is the sort of main social hub for board games, has been um, sort of recently updating its user interface to be more accessible. And I think that's dangerous because if you scratch the surface of BGG, the number of racist and problematic board games is like bonkers. Why are they making those games easier to find by updating the site's UI? <laughs> yeah, They're I mean, playing a dangerous game. I'm still uh, in the Bonanza world and some of the stuff I've found is absolutely terrifyingly wrong. I'm not even going to mention it. Christ. All right. Um... <laughs> hey, Tom, let's let's talk about something uh, more uplifting. You put out an absolute corker 
of a video uh, on the site last week. Um, you put out a video reviewing, I believe, 10 games made by the publisher Buttonshy, who make these beautiful little games that have, what is it, a maximum of 18 cards? 18 cards, yeah. 18 cards each. And you reviewed 10 Buttonshy games in 10 minutes. Yeah, 10 short minutes. It was unbelievable. There was a bit of time slippage here and there. I saw some comments saying that that review felt like the longest 10 minutes of someone's life. I didn't know what that meant, but maybe people at home can find that out if they go and watch your button show video. I think it was a compliment. It was, weirdly. But yeah, I did. I did. I did some wallet game reviews. They were good. It was a good fun video. It wasn't a good fun video. To, I keep saying it's a good fun video to make. It wasn't a good fun video to make. It was a nightmare because I put way too many edits in. Um, but the thing I want to talk about very briefly on the podcast as well... I continually, while making that video, came back to this idea of playing these games in a pub, mainly because of a very sanitized way I ended up playing them all for review, which was like sort of testing them in a just a, like, hello, would one of you like to test out one of these wallet games? Yes, I would. Let us play. Like, these games aren't meant for like, let us test a game now environment. They're short form, they're lunch break games, they're like yeah. over a couple of drinks games. And I just felt, I don't know, a bit sad about that. And I just wanted to say that about these wallet games. Do you want to apologize to Buttonshy for not testing their games in the ideal environment? <laughs> in, in a pub. So, hey, should we should we talk about, should we try and math, discuss now what would be the absolute ideal circumstance to play a Buttonshy game that we were not able to deliver in your review? It would be, it would be two drinks in playing in Vino Morte with like six or seven people. And, you know, that's definitely illegal at the moment in many ways. <laughs> yeah, I would like to be, I would like to have had a, like maybe a pint and a half of beer. And then mm. I would like someone to reach into their pocket and take out, ah, oh, sugar. What was it called, Tom? The game which is Star Wars Rebellion in 18 cards. Liberation. Liberation. Yes. I would like to have a pint and a half. Someone, perhaps you, flops that card onto a table and goes, do you want to play a game of Star Wars Rebellion that uses only 18 cards. In 10 minutes. <laughs> I would say, yes, please. Um, but no, yeah, it's not ideal to, you know, to actually have a sit down at the table with your family and, and expect an 18 card game to deliver like this thrilling experience. Right, exactly. But there's a couple of things that really did give me a lot of like excitement, which is a load of people in the comments were asking like, why didn't you cover X or why didn't you cover Y? Or, you know, this is the best wallet game of them all. I highly recommend. And like, honestly, I might at some point because the games are so moorish and i think if i ever get a chance to play these things in that ideal environment then like i'd love to make another video one day going like the 10 other <laughs> button shy games reviewed in 10 star minutes because they're just lovely they're lovely and i want to put some love for that publisher like out there because i think they're doing really good work very very cool publisher working with all kinds of other designers as well and also i mean it's it's i don't think you mentioned in the video what an incredible design challenge it is to make a game that uses just 18 cards. Right. But the people at home need to know, this isn't like 18 cards and some tokens or 18 cards and then a big manual or an accompanying rulebook. It's just 18 cards. That's yeah. it. So all the games fit in a wallet that you can literally slip in your back. How many, how many button shy games do you think you could fit in a standard pair of jeans? Because I'm thinking like at I'm least gonna five. I'm going to do it right now. Hold on. Oh, this is I think like content. more than five. Oh Two. yeah, I mean, if I think you could get, you could do double deckers. Like, Three, four, back pockets. We came back pockets. Five, yeah, back pockets, back pockets too. Yeah. Six. This is I mean, this, I, seven. You have eight. ten. Do you want? Can you fit all ten in one pocket? Nine, ten, eleven. They only sent him ten. Twelve. <laughs> I don't know where he got them from. <laughs> I had, I did have a couple of them already. Hold on. Can you fit all of them in one pocket? 
I yeah. mean, I've got if, very large jean pockets, and I can, in fine. fact, fit every single one in one pocket. Okay. You heard so it that, here first. So that's 12 games, and then four pockets, so that would be... <laughs> 12 four, you could fit. You could literally fit 48 <laughs> button-shy games in Tom's jeans. You'd be a riot at the pub. Hey, did anyone want to play these games? And they just plunged them. <laughs> Spill them across the table. I mean, I think at that point you would get looks walking around. <laughs> but If you could walk at all, you yeah. know, it would probably, like, the friction alone. Um, so, yeah, if that's piqued your interest, uh, I absolutely recommend uh, going to YouTube and watching Tom's review of Button Shy games. Uh, and, of course, if you don't often watch Shut Up and Sit Down videos, we have our own YouTube channel called Shut Up and Sit Down that makes things easy to find. Or you could just search YouTube for Shut Up and Sit Down Button Shy. And that's about all of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast that we have for you this week. But never fear, we'll be back literally next week next Friday with another episode of you guessed it this podcast in the meantime do be sure to check out the website during the week for updates on what's going on every Tuesday we're going to be streaming games that we're playing uh, just just because they've got beans in them in the case of uh, Excalibone <laughs> or because we we like them or checking them out for review just just come and hang out with us as we technically sort of do a job and of course video reviews and all of that jazz that you like. In the meantime, have a lovely week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Goodbye. Do you two want to play a game of Marco Bono? No. What about uh, no. Napoleon Bonaparte? I've told you, no. stop DMing me. No.